This workshop is about exploring ways of using sound and music in radio making. And what I want to do is raise questions, really. I, I'm not thinking of it so much as a how-to, as a, as a raising of questions like, well, why use music in the first place? What is music in the first place? There's a festival in Sydney called What is Music, and it's the only music festival I've ever bought a T-shirt from and proudly wear, because I just think it's a really great question. And also questions like, how long can you... How, how long can you leave a piece of sound or music for? Um, what is sound quality? What does duration say? Lots of questions like that. I've chosen a certain number of clips, and each one, I hope, demonstrates a slightly different point. Um, they're all my own clips, and that's primarily because they're the clips that I, you know, I know well, I can talk about from the inside out, and the ones that I had easy access to. Um, what I'd like to do, though, from those clips and with your help is to maybe extract principles, ideas from them, you know, because my solutions to those questions that we've, that I've outlined up front, my solutions may or may not suit you. They may or may not suit your working situation. You may or may not like them. You may agree or disagree. I don't think that that matters. But what I think that's important is that if we can look at some principles that come out of those, uh, that you can transpose the ideas back to your own working situations. And again, if we had all day together, I'd love to do that together. I think that you know it would be really good for us as a group to find a kind of meeting place or you know the middle ground between what I'm offering and and the situations that you work in or the ways that you want to work. But I'm going to have to leave that to you your homework is to, and I think, you know, I know that you can do that. I believe that in every working situation, there's a way to add musicality to your work. And I'd also like to shift the idea from, let's not say how to use music, but let's say how to be more musical in what you do, how to be musical. Um, and that's appropriate, by the way, because I think, you know, if I could impart one thing and one thing only, and I, and I think it's something a lot of people have really been saying today, is that um, use your intuition. You know? So I think it's appropriate that you do find your own ways. I think that's all we ever do anyway. Um, but use your intuition. You know? Find your own voice. Um, trust, trust your intuition. That's the way I think good work always comes about. I'm sure you know that. The background, too, to some of the clips I've chosen or the points that I thought to make... Uh, I suppose it has to do with things I've heard that I think could do with challenging or you know, might, be, might be interesting to challenge. Um, along the way, we'll glance over using location sound, working with musicians, uh, working with recorded music, working with voice. That's if we have time. I'm, I'm already predicting. <laughs> I know I've got a lot to say um, and a lot long clips to play, so um, we probably won't get through it all. And I think that will be somewhat up to you. Um, if you want to interact a lot, that's fine. We'll get through less, but you know, we'll do it more thoroughly. If you don't, um, then I'll, I'll just kind of keep moving through it. Um, so the first thing I'd like to suggest is that sound, sound music, I'm going to use them pretty interchangeably, um, can and does carry a lot of meaning and that it can carry a lot of your story. And so I'd like to just test that. I'm going to play a, a little extract from a piece I made last year in Finland. 
for Hari Hutamaki. Some of you probably met him last year at, the, at this conference um, and his program, Radio Atelier. Uh, the reason I thought I'd uh, start with this is because it's in Finnish, and so I assume nobody or very few people will understand the spoken word. Um, there's, also, um, there's also spoken word in the form of old recordings that you'll hear, but I didn't actually intend them in this part of the piece to be understood anyway. They're more there as a musical texture. So assuming that you'll get very little, if any, of the spoken word, I'll just be interested to see what meanings, if any, um, hopefully there will be some meanings that you'll take. And by meanings, I mean you know, in anything, impressions, concepts, um, and you might take it from the tone of voice, the music, the sound, whatever. But I'd just like to ask you, after I play a short clip, if, if you felt anything from it or understood anything from it.
Stop that. There's about six or seven seats if people, on these two rows if anybody wants to move up. So, yeah, I'd just like to put that to you. I wonder if um, one or two or three people could suggest whether they felt that they understood anything about the program or took anything, took any meetings um, from that. And if so, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, and I've been asked to ask people to use the mic when they speak, so I'm asking all of you if you, when you come up, is that true? People should use the mic? Yeah, because they're doing... No, so you, so you thought the static sounded like gunfire? Yeah. I can repeat the questions if it's easier. Right. Dates that were mentioned in the English text that behind the subtext were earlier than any kind of recording, though. You know, it was 1854. Yes, so it was still in the living memory of the recordings. Most of those were around 1890, which were the earliest recordings. And one of them was a trumpeter from the Light Brigade in 1854, and one was Florence Nightingale, also in 1854, so talking about the past. The, the very first like, recorded sound, I think, was this. Like the sea, yeah. Oh, that's funny because one of the lines, very close to there, if not in there, was um, you can hear the roar of the sea in it. Mm -hmm. Any other ideas or? It seemed melancholic, but in order for two people to talk like that to each other, it seemed like they must know each other very well and be friends. Yeah, yeah. I've, I really love the sound of the Finnish language. It has that melancholy sound to me, and the way the actors deliver the lines. And, yeah, I felt that that was in it, and, in fact, it defined the piece for me. It defined how I made the piece to some degree, and that intimacy that you described is there, too. So, yeah, you're getting a sense of possibly something about relationship or... But also the plotting of the plotting minor keys in the keyboard section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot to take in, so I thought I'd just maybe do that in two sections and play another, uh, a shorter extract from it again, and maybe this time have a listen for the piano, just see what the piano's doing. That's the right extract.
them fade all the way because I don't seem to be good at finding. Um, so, any more thoughts after hearing that? Did anyone feel like, yeah, both? You first? If you can, if it's easy, pop up there, and if not, I'll repeat the question. <laughs> I learned that last session. <laughs> um, the, the piano seemed to anchor the sort of emotional voice, and, and also it was more forefront, uh, I noticed. It seemed almost to shift also a little bit toward the middle or end with um, the, the, the rhythm of it. But I just felt that it provided a space for this, but it anchored it, it mm-hmm. sort of balanced it somehow, and it also had a tone mm-hmm. to it. So, okay. And yeah. I have a sense of the piano as a recording that was skipping, and that the static was the surface noise of the record. But mm-hmm that played with your mind because you know that the piano sounded recorded in real time but there was this static and the, so it sort of made, had, gave me this sense of is it now or is it in the past yeah. so it suggested to me that it was both somehow yeah. so. well the piano was talking to the surface noise if you will yeah. that was a, obviously a repeated sample of you know, so the, the rhythm of the surface noise was informing yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, on a technical level, that's um, the the surface noise was recorded and sampled and looped. So, for me, that was a bit like the text of this piece. The, the spoken text is about physical processes of communication, I suppose, and like like vinyl recordings and that sort of thing. And um, it's an essay that presents old recordings, essentially. And without saying a lot more about it, I feel like you did take a lot of the meanings that I was hoping to embed. And yes, the surface noise was sampled and looped, which suggested that recording, that kind of technology to me, a record going round and round. And the piano, yeah, I was doing two things with that. In fact, I was doing all the things that I, you each named. I. One reason I wanted it is in an hour-long piece uh, with a lot of diverse recordings, I wanted something that would anchor it, like you said, that would just be a kind of spine all the way through and give it some kind of consistency. But I didn't want it just to be an aesthetic thing. I wanted it to integrate into the piece both conceptually and um, sonically. So, And I think it was you who picked up the conceptual and you, the sonic, a bit. Um, conceptually, I wanted to bring it closer to this idea of recordings and the... And the the, the vinyl records going around so this clean digital piano I, I manually chopped you know I just sort of hacked into it and I really liked the sound of that but to me it also suggests a record skipping or you know a needle in a lock groove at the end of a record and I did it for sonic reasons as well like you said I think it, for me it brought the, the dirty you know compressed staticky sound closer to the, the clean sound and so in all those ways the piano starts to work for me like a kind of metaphor or, or maybe metonym would be a better word like you might use the word law for say, the law instead of um, a policeman or Washington instead of the government. To me, it starts to do, it has to have that sort of function of carrying meanings in the program, standing in for things. And I wanted to play those two, hoping, and, and thankfully it works, that you would find that it delivered meaning. So one basic point is that sound really carries a lot of your meaning. It can, and you need to trust that. Um, 
but also that it can be an active element. You know, it can really spring from your story. Uh, it's not it's not just there for decoration or, or mood. Um, it can extend your program. It can ha enhance it. It can add layers of meaning to it. So I think the key to using sound that way, or one key, is just looking for the music, the metaphor, the movement in the materials at hand. And once you, you do that, your piece somehow starts to define itself. You know, when you get that kind of right... Um, you sort of just you, you look at what you've got, whether it's recordings you've made or, or you know, conceptual ideas, and you just somehow distill that down. And somewhere a conceptual break happens, and it it defines itself. It's kind of a mysterious process, but I but I absolutely believe in it. So anyway, if sound carries meaning, as I hope you agree, it does. I'd just really like to ask why it's so often suppressed, you know, and I think, one thing I think is just amazing about the work that I've heard from, let's say, here from the U.S., is that there's, you know, you allow so many voices, you're really good at that, I think much better than a lot of places that are, other places that I'm aware of, are really allowing diverse voices, but where's the voice for sound, you know, why, it, 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 ha it has a voice and let it speak, I, is, is what I'm thinking. Um, okay. While we're on a piece that uses archival recording, I think it's a um, nice chance for me to make just another little small point. Um, so I'm going to play an extract from a piece that I uh, made called Fidelity. Fidelity meaning two senses of fidelity, uh, faithfulness, the idea of kind of love and faithfulness, and also fidelity in recording quality. Um, <clears throat> It features uh, an interview that I found in the ABC archives, uh, made in 1948, with Helen Keller. It's an interview made by ABC um, announcer Peter McGregor. He's speaking with Helen Keller and her helper, uh, Polly, Polly Thompson. And I don't see that many very young people. Well, there are a few. So does everyone know who Helen Keller is? Yeah. Um, she was taken to Alexander Graham Bell um, as a child in hopes of having her hearing restored, but famously it was through her teacher's touch that she found a voice, that, that, her, that she was able to speak. And so in this, um, in this piece, I basically, without going too much into things that aren't, that aren't relevant here, was trying to make a comparison with uh, a famous recording that considered one of the first or the first jazz recording that was lost uh, for many years and that was very damaged and that was restored by an engineer. And so I was making uh, some, some links between ultimately the miracle of giving voice through touch, you might say. And um, so I'll just play an extract. I can see I'm going to be very bad at this. Just let me... Ah. Well, then there are two things I want to ask them, Thompson. What is her favorite class? 
And sorry, I'll just, I'll just come in with one thing. So you're about to hear Peter McGregor interviewing Helen and Polly. That's the beginning. And one small point I wanted to make is that um, this is an archival recording. It was made straight to disc cutter at the time, and um, it's not good you know, quality by our standards or by contemporary standards. I played all seven minutes of this recording. I'm only going to give you a two-minute extract here, but I wouldn't be surprised to know that you found it so interesting you'd like to hear more of it, you know. And I just, I, I want to make that small point up front that I think people can handle that kind of quality. And I know that you might argue with your editors over that. I understand that there's a, a fear around using uh, certain qualities of recording, but I think we all just need to think about the compromises that we're prepared to make and what we're prepared to argue for, because I think that's not interesting in spite of its quality. I think it's interesting also because of its quality, but I'll just play a bit now. I've also juxtaposed it with a piece of music afterwards, and we can talk about that. And her favorite music. Would you tell us that? Helen, what is your favorite flower? Thank you so much for those words because we love them here in Australia too. And Helen, what is your favorite music? All her favorite instruments. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This symbolizes to me. Oh, thank you so very, very much, Helen I feel we can go on talking for a long, long time. But I mustn't be selfish. I know many others want to talk with you. And I've already had more than my share. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Mr. McKinney. Very Okay, just um, the thing I, that I wanted to say about the archival recording is that, as I said, I think it's you know fascinating because of its recording quality, and I think that we can trust that. You know, though the technologies that we use are part of the 
the fabric of our you know sound memories they're like the direct imprint the kind of central reminders of our history it's like when you you know your old Beatles records it's that tight compressed sound that's part of that for you you know when you hear a digital remastering it's not the same it's a it's a different thing and um that's, that's the only point about that. But I wanted to look at the piece of music. I, I'd like to do the same thing that we did last time and ask maybe just a couple of people to comment on their, their sense of what happened there or you know, what they felt about it or, or what they took from it on any level. Mm -hmm. There's a theremin, yeah, it's just been pointed out. Yeah. Someone said it sounds like her voice, her singing. Yeah, well, um, when I first heard that interview, just sitting in a little room by myself, as I was listening to it and just, you know, gobsmacked by what an amazing interview it was in all six minutes, it was just incredible. Um, as I was listening, that song came to my mind, and I knew... It, the instant it did that somehow that would be an equal third of the piece the jazz recording I told you about this interview and this this piece of music I didn't know why but I never doubted that it would and that's again the the kind of I think those intuitive leaps are very important you know to trust it was only later that I that I realized what you know what you heard straight off that to me, um, that that's that piece is Clara Rockmore playing the theremin. Many of you will know that theremins are an early electronic instrument that involved no touch. You you, you uh, use your hands to control the pitch and the volume, and uh, you stand perfectly still and move around this, these antenna. Um, being a piece about touch, as I mentioned before, the giving voice through touch, a piece that involved, uh, you know, a process that involved no touch was an interesting contrast for me. But also, I've always felt, listening to that, that Clara Rockmore would have liked to be in a light opera singer. You know, that's, that piece is so vocal. And it, it, I realized that for me, Helen is using Polly, playing Polly in the same way that Clara's playing the theremin. Um, and the fact that there are two women, uh, Clara and that she's accompanied by her sister on piano and Helen and Polly are a duo. Um, Polly says at some point in the interview, you know, she doesn't want to live much longer after Helen goes. And so none of those things did I know. I just felt that that music was there. And so um, I think we can really trust that music speaks or that a sound picture t speaks a thousand words and that that we don't always have to know the meanings that are embedded there. All those things are embedded there, and you might never know any of those, but you, you get a feeling. Or maybe it was just the feeling that it was kind of from the right period or something, but somehow that juxtaposition, I hope, speaks. And, you know, I, I, I came to that point because I just thought, how often do I hear a piece of music in a piece that isn't predictable or logical, you know, that, that really surprises me. So, you know, I just think, let's, let's surprise people. And, of course, if you're going to work with record mu recorded music, it helps to have, you know, a database in your head of music, you know. So I'd encourage you, if you're going to work with a lot of recorded music, to love music, to like it. As the man on the first panel said today, you know, he collects images. You know, just be collecting, not necessarily physically collecting, but in your head, you know, because, of course, that piece couldn't have popped into my mind unless I'd already heard it. <laughs> goes without saying. Um, so, yeah. Content-wise, the obvious piece of music, 
Beethoven's yeah. Did you struggle with that? What was that conversation with Well, I did use that in the piece. Um, it's, it's quite a long piece. And I, at some point, I, I again took samples of that and reworked it quite a lot. So you might not recognize, you'd know it was a piece of classical music, you might know it was Beethoven, but it was, mm, it was treated to sound like it was on a record kind of bumping up against a lock groove and kind of hard to describe without hearing it, but yes, I actually did use it, but I probably, and I might have used it just simply and directly, that would have been a lovely thing to hear too. Yeah, so I don't think, because it's logical, it's bad, I, I only wanted to make the point that it doesn't have to be logical, you know, that people get things. Yeah. So did you uh, edit and all three voices closer together, or that's just the way it No, the only edit idea was a very interesting thing for me. Um, I just decided, and again, I wasn't quite sure why, but I just kind of whacked into it and made it uh, bump and then repeat itself. And a full 45 seconds of that interview repeats itself. I didn't include that here, but it's actually maybe even a minute, minute and a half. And it's so distinctive. Um, Polly says something, and it, you know, such a, um, a memorable thing that she says. What surprised me is that almost no one on the first listening ever hears that there's like a... It just she says a whole whack of stuff and then she goes bump and she says it all again and people don't pick it up. So I found that really interesting how, how little we take in or, or how much is going on in, a, in something and, and you're only taking in certain levels. It's like that too with the recording quality. You know, um, I think people take in things in so, meanings in so many different ways and, you know, a, a person told me listening to this piece, it was a musician in fact, said that for him the meanings he took were the mix of the diff there's many different recording qualities throughout this piece and it was the mix of those that was the meaning for him you know where someone else might listen to the text you know we all know that we're oriented in different ways and they say when you teach you should do something visual and something audio and, and I think that's true in our program making too that A people will take meanings in different ways so if you make it rich and full of meaning uh, everybody will come out with their money it's worth you know and, and also that I forgot my second point. I'll probably I'll think of that. So nowhere in the piece do you explain what the instrument is, right? Actually, yes, there is a little bit of text there afterwards saying that it's it's not a kind of uh, contextualization or a, you know a voiceover, but it's it's part of the fabric of the text. It's mentioned that that the theremin was a seance-like instrument and some reviews are read, some reviews of the time of her performance that worked along with the idea of touch and, and vibration and voice. And I was going to ask along those lines too, so that the people who are listening know that there's, can infer there's a juxtaposition of touch and no touch. Yeah. Okay. Or a juxtaposition that opens a space in their mind. But they may not know it's touching that. Do they have the information that that instrument is something that you don't touch? Do they have that information in the piece? They actually do, but I, I wouldn't say that it's necessary for them to. But, but if, if it's not necessary, then it's information that helps drive you and makes the connection in your mind to make this piece of work. Right? Yeah. And in that sense, it's not important information for people to have to understand 
the irony that you have in the piece. Yeah. Don't they need that information? Yeah. Well, I like. Well, I don't think they need it. I liked that layer of information, and that's why I did embed it in the text. But I think in an oblique way. You know, I didn't just come back after the piece and say da da da. But the actors speak it in a, in a certain way. Um, but why I don't think it's necessary is I just think there are so many layers of meaning there for one, and you are all so unique, every listener is going to come up with their own connections and that's much more interesting than anything I could do, you know I think the best you can do is trust you, you you've got a reason for putting that there if there's integrity in that that'll speak um, who knows how it'll speak you know, you've got a different history than I do so you're going to read it differently but if it's if it's heartfelt or, you know, if it's real, you'll probably get something out of it. And I don't care what you get out of it. You know, I don't, I don't think I can control the meanings, and I wouldn't want to if I could. But, but the irony of the juxtaposition is part of the power of the association of those things. So if you withhold that information, you're withholding the opportunity for people to make that connection. Yeah, but then this person said it was like she was singing. So that's a whole different... Yeah, and I said that that's, that's, that's the one that you've thought is important. And I agree, I like that too. But somebody else might think something totally different is very meaningful for them. Maybe her mother's saying, and, you know, who knows why she, that's what she picked up on. But. Yeah, I, well, and when I said, is it a thermon? The first thing I thought of was that it sounded like her voice. <laughs> well, I would listen to more closely, is that a thermon? But when you thought of the song, you weren't thinking. You know, when it came into your head, you weren't thinking, oh, it doesn't, you can't tell it's sure. It just came yeah. into your head, yeah. and you're trusting that gut feeling, yeah. you know, and that's the experience. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. yeah. Okay. Um, should we move on? Yeah. Well, that, so that's two kind of essay pieces. I would call both of those pieces essay pieces. And, um, <clears throat> probably important to talk about um, pieces that are more story-based or you know, location sound-based. Um, so I thought I'd play a bit of an older piece that I made. and It's a piece called John's Garden, and I'm going to play a couple of extracts from it. And one of the questions that I'll raise a little bit down the track with this is, how long can we leave something for, you know, and what is duration about? What does slowness say? Um, but before I do that, I'll, I'll just set it up a little bit by playing a couple of short extracts that demonstrate other things. Firstly, I'll say, um, probably most of you will know that Derek Jarman was a British filmmaker who died in May 4. Um, he also, you might know, uh, famously, or sub-cult famously, made a, a, a garden before he died. He put a lot of um, his, his last energy uh, into making a very unusual garden. He moved away from London and moved down to a place called Dungeness in Kent. Um, very desolate landscape near the sea. A very jagged garden that he made. The, the landscape's desolate. It's very windy. Um, when I got there, I, I, I saw how desolate it is. I'd heard it, his house, the little fisherman's cottage that he bought and lived in and made this garden that faces a nuclear power plant on one side and uh, the sea is very near on the other side. It's always very windy there. Um, there are boats strewn across the landscape and rusting metal and... Um, these 
I, I said it was a spot of shingle, which is what the British call these small water-worn stones that are by the seaside. And his garden was on a bed of these stones. Um, I'd seen it in pictures, and I kind of had no understanding of it. But when I got there, I just sat for a while in the garden, walked around the beach as well, but sat in the garden for a while, and it became clear to me what the garden was about. He was taking his landscape and putting it at right angles or, you know, reworking it, reworking nature into sculpture, you might say. He'd made circles of uh, wind-twisted wood and, and seashells and sculpture of old tools and uh, bits off boats and, and so on. And so I thought that's the process I'd use. I'd record the landscape, the sounds of the landscape, and rework them, aestheticize them, because one thing I really liked about Jarman, in fact, the main thing I, I like about Jarman uh, is the process that he, you know, the processes that he follows. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd try to, uh, in some ways, use the same process. So I'll just play a couple of extracts. Um, if the piece is in three, three sections, and I'm going to play very short extracts of the first two sections, and then I'll play a longer section of the third. Um, the first section is walking around the garden, being taken around by his lover, Keith, who's described things to me. But uh, I think what one thing that this section demonstrates is the use of location recording musically, uh, using the texture of a place. And so I was working with a musician uh, on this, so what I did is record a lot of sounds and then went back to Sydney and worked with the musician. And in, in the case of this first section, I recorded a lot of the stones and the sounds of hitting metal and so on, and then we sampled them up, and he played them. I, I don't have that skill, so he played them in specific melodic and rhythmic patterns. So a bit of the first section... Did you just assume that that would get lost when you put the bed of music? 
No, no, I, I, um, yeah, I, like recently I recorded a, a little chapel and um, I wanted to hear myself walking so I made sure that the, the stereo was getting some of my voice and some of the walking. With him I wasn't so specific, um, but yeah, I wasn't worried that that was there. Did that answer the question? Yeah. Um, I'll say a little bit more about the piece eventually became for me also about Keith, the lover, because Derek first moved down to the cottage and he spent an extraordinary amount of time, he, like I said before, it was his last time doing this and a lot of energy and people marveled at what he put into this garden. Um, Keith then later moved down and left this kind of wonderful world that they lived in, you know, very exciting and moved to this fisherman's cottage. He nursed Derek till he died but surprisingly he then stayed on at the cottage and by the time I encountered him it had been a good long while and he'd still stayed on at the cottage and in fact he'd become a fisherman um, and was going out on fishing boats each day and he was also tending the garden I think he saw that as his main you know, role although he said Derek wouldn't mind if he didn't if he bulldozed the garden but so the question also became for me how long is Keith going to stay so time I also read a lot, of course, in Derek's diaries about time. He read a lot about time and the landscape. So I eventually thought, what is a garden but time? And so I, you know, I'll often do that, and I imagine you all do, that somehow the piece becomes something at, a, at an abstracted level from what you originally thought it was. So um, when, Keith, when Keith took me for a walk inside the house, the thing I focused on there uh, was a clock that Derek had modified so that it didn't tell regular time. Um, so I did a recording of that, and I'll just play you a little extract of that. Oh, and I'll mention beforehand, so then when I got back to Sydney, the musician and I started talking about, you know, we were both interested in this aesthetics of passing time, and so we thought, well, what if the piano mimics the chime of a clock that Derek modified to tell improper time? And um, with our, we asked ourselves these questions always, like I said before, what is a garden but time? And we ask ourselves, what is the, you know, the, the minute hand and the second but a painting of time? So that's the kind of idea we worked with.
dirt used to wear a little tiny tin frog. And it was really handy because I could find him in the dark because he used to get lost. I could tell exactly which room he The Japanese word for frog is the same as the word for go back, which is the same meaning as we call it. So that's, that's a short extract from the second section, and um, you heard a piece of music there as well. We um, wondered to ourselves if we could make a kind of, well, we called it a Super 8 music, um, but something that kind of reflected Jarman's notions of British history and nostalgia and family. So that uh, piece of music involved a bit of research, you know, just sort of looking through old um, music books. So... One point I might make there too, the musician I worked with there is someone I often work with. There are probably five or six musicians that I regularly work with and it's really good if you're going to work with musicians and it's such a luxury to, to form strong relationships with them. You know, this particular person and I uh, can speak in a kind of shorthand. You know, we've got to a conceptual point where we know how to work with each other and that's really an important thing to do, if, if, again, if you can. And, you know... Like I said, you know, if you're going to work with recorded music, it's really important to have a database of music in your head. Uh, if you're going to work with musicians, get to know people, you know, form relations. Don't just go out looking at the last minute or, you know, hire somebody in. And Like if you live here in Chicago, you might or might not know, but, you know, there's just an incredible contemporary music scene that's like the envy of the whole world here in Chicago. So you know, if you don't know about it, talk to Julie. Um, she knows a lot about it. But... Yeah, just form relationships if you can. Um, I'm going to play the third section, and I'm going to play a longer section of that. And this is the point that I raised at the beginning of this, this part of this talk. Um, I'm going to ask us a question about duration and slowness and what, is, what does slowness stay, say. So um, this section is seven minutes long, but I'm going to skip to about the last two or three three, let's say three minutes, um, and it is a change of pace, so feel free to sail in at the end of the day and just um, take your thinking caps off for a moment. Um, I'll play the first... No, that's not it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hope this is it. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll play the first bit of this section so you can just get a kind of feel for what Keith says at the beginning of it, but then I'll, I'll just speed through. something called a common sun star. It's a kind of starfish with 12 legs. 
And uh, I can't believe that someone first saw one and called it common because it was the most uncommonly beautiful. Its patterning is a fractal that as you look into it, you can fall into this tiny orange and yellow thing. So we see things out there. Disruption. The waves just go on. All the bit I'm skipping over is waves and a piano building up. I would have loved to play a lot more of that. Um, I cut it quite short because of the time of the workshop. Um, it actually went about seven minutes, and the piano slowly builds up into it. So I'm not sure if, if I was able to make a point about duration in a very short time. And I realise that's the compromise, or that's the kind of balancing act that we're all doing all the time. We all have kind of slots, and uh, so... The only point I'd like to make there is that I think slowness... Well, maybe I'll ask you, could, does anyone have any comments or feelings about... Yeah? Just have a question, did the voice ever come back? No, that's the end of the piece, yeah. What did you do with the waves when the sound changed? Uh, they were actually being sucked backwards. 
through a synthesizer, sampled and played played backwards. Was that shift gradually from? I mean, because there were wave waves, right? Yeah. And then, I, I mean, I, I couldn't tell if I was I suddenly I suddenly noticed it or the shift was more quickly, quick quick than I yeah. had noticed. Um, the yes, they were basically for a good part of the seven minutes naturalistic or natural naturalistic. Uh, the piano went from a you know, did a seven minute fade almost, uh, but toward the end, yeah, they were becoming less natural and more tampered with all the way, and yeah, the shift was happening faster. Yeah. But it, it was it was it was a gradual. It was somewhat of a gradual. It was very gradual. Yeah. Did anybody have any kind of take any meanings from it, if you like? Yeah. 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 A few people have said that to me that it for them becomes like the death rattle. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think only duration can do that, you know, it's like a lot of the pieces that Kay played earlier. Um, you need that kind of space. We talked before about that juxtaposition in the pieces with Helen Keller, that there was the space in between the pieces, a metaphorical space as well as a little bit of literal space. A, a juxtaposition, I think, gave you a space in your mind, or duration can give you a space in your mind. And we can't always have a, as much of it as we'd like, but if we can trust it, we might want to argue for more of it when we can. Yeah? Also, I mean, for me, uh, Keith. Yeah, and that's what I meant before about that kind of metonymical thing that sound can do. You know, like back to the, the earlier piece, the finished piece. Um, you know, it starts to be like a philosophical argument or, you know, a, for, in that case for me it was like um, you're drawn into the trance of a repeating physical movement. And I guess this is, you know, fairly similar. Maybe we do all have our, our tricks. But, um, yeah, it, yes. Um, how long was the total piece? Uh, about 16 minutes. So, so that took up a... half of it was that ending. Yeah. So, I mean, you said at the very beginning that um, American radio tends to um, emphasize the voice and not use, like, this sound. Um, and maybe it's because we didn't hear the whole thing, but, like, I wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. And, like, I guess I don't know more because it was all cut up. But um, how did you make that decision to do a whole seven-minute conclusion rather than maybe like a minute conclusion like we just heard? Well, part of it was fortuitous. I, uh, I went to England to do this and uh, I had 
the nightmare that that I've since learned happens to almost everyone at least once in their career. When I got back, I'd recorded an inch a very long and very good interview with Keith in the house, um, and then just some extraneous stuff walking around the garden. I say extraneous; it was very important, but it wasn't as well recorded. And I thought that the meat of the program would be this inside. And I got home and started to uh, get ready to work on the piece, and my tape was blank. And to this day, I don't know why. And at first, of course, you know, as you can imagine, I, I was in a, in a panic about it because I felt. You know, the station had kind of supported me going there, and you know, what was I going to do? But then I realised it was like a death for me. You know, it was, and I just kind of decided to go with it. You know, the program was dealing with death and sadness, and so that's kind of where I started from, and I kept moving, and it probably did inform the piece a lot. I felt the piece was about time and about sadness. Yeah. I'm really sorry I don't experience Australian radio, so I'm trying to figure out. Like what day of the week or what context is this heard by the public? It's uh, like a lot of these programs, like the European uh, counterparts. Um, it's uh, fairly late at night. I think, God, it's been a little while since I've been there, but I think we go to air at nine. Uh-huh. Yeah, nine o'clock uh, for an hour. Every night or no, sorry, once a week. Those? Yeah, on a Monday night. Yeah. We used to have a repeat on a Sunday night, but we were taken off. Now we're doing a new, uh, a new program, which is kind of uh, a mix of a lot of these. We, we have three programs in our department. that One does radio drama, one does features, one is more acoustic art-oriented. Um, and now we're kind of doing a quick mix of those, which goes to air earlier on, a, I think it's a Sunday night they're doing. Um, I don't think, though, that you have to have that much time or to be working with a musician or, you know, we're we're talking about resources, and I'm aware there are really different contexts going on here. But I really maintain what I said at the beginning. I think anybody can bring some level of this. For example, I, I think I saw Robert walk into the room earlier today, and I really agreed with what he was saying in the first session today, that, you know, the music of life is out there. You can grab it. Um, and I'd like to kind of... Well, let, I'll mention this. I'm, I'm making a program. I've just been staying in Belgium for a while, and I decided I'd make a program about a small Flemish community there, and I've been really blown away by how much community there is there, what a sense of community there is, so I thought I'd make a program about that. And so it's basically straight storytelling and there's not much uh, call for music and, and so on, and I don't plan to work with a musician or have too many resources to do it. But I just, kind of thinking back about the recordings I made, I realised, and you do realise these things after when you ask to give a workshop, you know, none of it is stuff that you're kind of thinking about when you do it, as you know. Um, but I thought about the recordings I'd made and why I'd made the choices I had. And so um, I wanted to do it like a, they have a lot of communal feasts there and I, they do medieval feasts and they eat pork and all kinds of things and that doesn't make much good sound. And so I organised, <laughs> I organised um, a mussel dinner. Belgians eat mussels, that's their national dish or one of them. And so they make a fabulous sound when you throw the shell into a tin you know, pot, which is usually how they do them. So clank, clank, clank is going all through this dinner. Rhythm is always there, and we all know how to use it. Um, I, well, it rains all the time in Belgium, so I made a lot of recordings of rain and beautiful sound of rain and drains, and I've got more of that than you can shake a stick at, you know. And somehow that will be in the program. Um, 
they bring out their horses. A lot of it takes place around the fiestas that they have there, and one of the things they do is bring out their horses for show. I went to make some recordings of a show, showing of the horses, and they were on grass, and that didn't sound very interesting. I did get some good recordings, but I decided to find a, a, a village nearby that had cobblestones because I realized after the fact, should have thought of it before, that the horses would make better sounds, you know, with their hoofs on the cobblestones. Um, church bells, of course. I met a couple who met at a fiesta and fell in love. She was the strawberry princess of the fiesta, and he was a sound recorder who was sent there with a TV crew, and I thought that was a nice story. Um, so I could have gotten them to just talk about that, but I instead asked them if there's uh, if they have a song, you know, their love song or whatever. So they sang that song on tape, and I got a li- they have great beer there. I got a little bit drunk and kind of we sang, you know, me and the barman, and it's terrible singing. But, you know, there's always those choices available and if you're well like I mentioned that chapel I walked around before that was in Belgium Um, if you go to this chapel on a certain day of the year it's said that if you walk around it three times your arthritis will be cured so I did that because I do have arthritis and um, so I could have either described the chapel it's sitting out in the field and it's very small or I could pace it out you know so I paced it out okay I'm walking around one two three I'm going around the first time one two three second time one two three and so on so you start to get a rhythm and I realize that's something I've used in a couple of programs counting is an easy kind of way to get a a rhythm and um, also when I was there on the way to that chapel, there was a lovely wooden bridge, and so I sat under it and recorded a bit of it. And you know, you'd hear the people, uh, the elderly people, coming on their bicycles to the chapel, and made a beautiful, very, very musical sound. Now that recording doesn't really have a place in my program. I don't immediately kind of know how I'll use that, but I'll really try to use that because it's delicious for one, and. It is really part of the story. So, you know, I'll, I'll try to work the story around to that because sound is our medium, you know, that we're not writing books here. And so if you can let the sound lead you, uh, it will, you know. Your story will start to f- define itself. I, I said I agreed with a lot of what Robert said uh, in the first panel, but the one thing I'm very different about, I, I never know where I'm going. I, I try not to because I feel if I knew what I was after there, I mean, of course, I knew I was headed toward the chapel, but, you know, if, if I had a very strong idea of what the story was, and if I was focused on text, too, I would have missed that. But if you're thinking of yourself as musical, if you're thinking of sound as a layer of your storytelling, then you would have to record that bridge. You would never walk by it, you know. Uh, but I think you would if you, weren't, if you weren't thinking that way. So I think, part, to me, part of good sound design within a piece is really listening and really being open, you know, staying open to where you are and what's around you and then and then selecting for that you know when I log I, I put stars by everything that has any interesting sonic quality and I, I tend to select for that again not consciously but you know thinking about this workshop I realise those are the selections I make as readily as I think oh that's an interesting point he'd make in fact probably more readily if I hear something musical I'm always almost always going to use it and somehow the story works itself out out of that out of that music I don't even know how it does it but it does it and then in the editing, of course, you know, if you're working with multi-track or even if you're not working with multi-track, um, there's, there's plenty of ways that you can edit up sound and to add to that musicality of the piece. And I think that's, that's what people 
you know, we're sensual beings. People like that. It draws them into the program and it, it gives them their meanings and it helps them uh, want to be in the program and hear some of the kind of spoken word meanings that you're, that you're giving as well. And I think we all have that ability. I mean, I know we do. We all have a sense of rhythm. You know, we all walk, we all have a heartbeat, etc. So these are kind of biological or physiological things that I think are givens and that, that our mind likes to respond to them. So we can trust that our listeners like to respond to that as well and you'll draw them in with those things. I have no idea how the time's going, but I bet it's almost over. I have a quick question. Yeah? Um, are you ever pulled in by the newsroom or asked to respond to something, <coughs> some crisis in the news, and, you know, maybe they give you a day or a couple of days and say, No, I'm not. Our program's very separate, but I did before I was at the listening and work on a, a daily uh, talk program, and I did my best there. Again, not did my best consciously but uh, you know if i think back to the stories i did i'd i'd have a sound effects person come in i'd try to make it active um uh, stories about musical things you know gum leaf whistlers coming in the studio and all, all kinds of um musical and sonic things hard to reach back that was 10 years ago but i i know that in even in that context which you know couldn't be less musical really we had a host and one or two guests in the studio and maybe people on the line from somewhere in the world and it was basically a talk show an ideas program and a wonderful one but somehow i did always try to bring musical things into it and i also know that as a producer and you'd all know this you stop listening for the ideas that you know you're there producing in the in the control room. You're hearing the rhythm. You know when it's going to end, how it's going. When, like Robert said, when the upward intonation is, and so on. That's really the level you're listening on. And of course, your listeners, you know, your audience is is listening on that level too. At at some level, and we all know that that's a very important part of any kind of program. How is the time? Is that the time? Is that when we're supposed to end? Okay, well, um, maybe I'll take one or two questions or comments and we'll close it. How does your collaborative process It's different with everyone. Can you talk about maybe like how it worked on Yeah. Um, and there I'd say it was very collaborative with the engineer more than the musician. The musician was more like a hired gun in that case. It was just there for one short session. Um, one thing I really picked up on about Andrew uh, was his voice quality. He sings, like so many kids do, you know, it's just, he's, he's excited. Kids are exciting and excited and his voice was lovely and was jumping all over the place. So I wanted to emphasize that. So I took what I thought were particularly musical little bits of his voice and um, I edited for those and just put them on a loop in a functional way just to give to a musician later so I just had a loop of certain sections of Andrew's voice and I asked the musician Ian just to try to copy the intonation of that so what you hear on tape is I, when Ian came into the studio I just played that loop over and over and just let him go and a bit sneakily didn't tell him that I was recording, which is what I'll do a lot. Um, I then get their permission if they, you know, I don't kind of sneak it on the air, but I do sneakily record him kind of getting, it when he was practicing with his voice, and that's the bit I liked. I liked it much better than what he actually thought was his final work um, because it had that vulnerable, you know, very tentative quality that I really liked, uh, somewhere between a boy and a man or something or illness and wellness or... Um, so then I put uh, the, a very small girl also 
in the studio after Ian left and ran the same loops for her and let her respond in her own way. And so that's her kind of and all that in the back, just kind of screaming and yelling. She was wild. She was a really young girl. I've met her since. Uh, it hasn't been that long, but she's now a kind of little lady, you know. She's sort of lost everything because <laughs> she went to school. Um, but then I just cut, you know, I edited the hell out of that. It, 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 there's probably more work in it than you, than you hear because out of many hours of Andrew, out of many hours of, you know, the not many hours, but a couple of hours of the musician and also of the little girl, there's a very selective process that's gone on, and then it's just a matter of kind of collaging together. So in that case, the music... But that's very rare for me, that he was just a kind of a hired gun. Normally I'd work much more collaboratively. We'd just sit and talk about the ideas and start getting a feel for what's our... what we're commonly interested in about the piece and how that can express itself. And I like to be really involved in that... Um, I like to, you know, maybe contribute the samples or um, I like to actually get my hands dirty and be as musical as I can with the materials I have and try to, almost like you're playing together, you know, you're playing on, on recordings and, and they're playing on their instrument. That, that's the most satisfying way for me to do it. Yep. How long do you work on a piece from start? And anybody, I, I've totally lost track of where we are, so please feel free to leave if you want, no problem. Um, uh, that really differs. Like Kay said, that's really like a bow of string in a way. Um, if was recorded very quickly, uh, but probably the, the longest ratio of uh, work to finished piece ever for me. I worked on it in the studio for uh, almost two weeks, I think, uh, almost ten days, and for only six minutes of... But more commonly, I would... Um, have a week or two of studio time to make up to an hour. Um, and uh, it's very variable how long I'd actually prepare in advance for that. I don't do a lot of preparation in advance. You know, I said I don't want to know where I'm go going, but uh, it could equally be said that I'm too dumb to know where I'm going. I, I really I can't seem to conceive anything in advance. I, I've tried it. I'm really no good at it. And I always go into the studio in a form of terror, thinking that I have nothing. Um, but what I do then as I get in there and start working and I improvise. I came from an improvising music background. I used to perform improvised music and I, I think that's all I know how to do. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily claim that's a good way to do it. But so I don't actually have a lot of prep time usually. I have enough time to do the recordings and enough time to listen to them. Uh, maybe enough time to do some pre-editing. Uh, certainly some paper editing. Uh, I picked what I think should go into the program, but I don't quite know how I'll use it in the program, I'd say. So that's why I need a, a bit more studio time than prep time, actually. Yeah? Do you aim to communicate to an audience that has a lot of experience listening, or you know, advanced listeners? Or no. To no, I don't believe in that. I don't think that... I think everybody can listen and can hear. And, you know, I've, I've had letters from people living in the outback of Australia, you know, like on a mission saying, you know, that touched me for whatever reason and no, I don't I don't think there's such well, there is such a thing as a, as an advanced listener, I guess, but I don't think they're any better than a <laughs> an unadvanced listener. The other part of my question was do you get a lot of response from people? No, um 
That's the frustrating thing about radio. I think I also make sound installations and I've been a performer in the past and I find radio a bit frustrating that way, that you put it out and you have no idea really. You know, I kind of hope for the best. I tend to find out more in workshops than I ever do, you know. But, yes, I do get, I do get letters and, you know, we, we get calls and that sort of thing, but I'd love a lot more of it. And that's why I like the idea of live radio, too. Someone mentioned it earlier today, but this, you know, call-ins and all that I think is, is really exciting and I'd like to do a lot more of that. can get very staid just doing um, highly produced pieces and, you know, and out they go and boom. Well, we could end it here if you like. Thanks.